Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 12? I want to look at Jeremiah 12. We're going to be in the middle of the chapter. And I realize we've already spent two sermons in Jeremiah chapter 12. This is a big book. If we want to finish the book of Jeremiah by the time Jesus returns, we're going to have to hustle. Uh, But there's this line in this chapter that I simply cannot get out of my mind. We've read through the chapter twice, and this line has stuck with me, and we can't go on until we dig a little deeper into it. And so I want to do something a little bit different this morning. We're just going to read five English words in Jeremiah 12, 7. They happen in the middle of a passage of judgment, and then it's actually going to take me half of the sermon to work up the courage to actually talk about those five, verse, five words in Jeremiah 12, 7. Jeremiah 12, 7, buried in judgment, God calls his people this, the beloved of my soul. The beloved of my soul. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I think when I read this, I think when we hear it, I think we can nod in public in agreement that, yes, indeed, the Bible says this. Yes, it applies to believers. Um, But I'm not sure what happens in quiet places on our own. I'm not sure if we can take these words and we can bank our lives on them. I don't know if we trust you with them. And so I pray that you would do what you promised to do, and that is by the power of your Holy Spirit, bury them so deep inside of our hearts that they satisfy the very thing that we long for. Would you do that in our midst? We ask boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, right now I'm reading an excellent, excellent book on porn and masturbation. In fact, it's such a good book that I want to recommend the title to you, but there's a ground rule, okay? When I say the author and title, every single person in this room with pen and paper has to write it down. Because if I didn't say that and I said anybody who needs this write it down, then we're going to be looking around for the one or two people that are honest enough to put it on paper, right? It's like saying I've got a cure for a rash. Here's what it is. I want every single person with a writing utensil to write this down because I think it's a worthy book. The author of the book is Michael John Cusick. Michael John Cusick, Q-U-S-I-K. And the book is entitled Surfing for God. Get it and read it on behalf of a friend who might struggle with this. Um, But in that book... Cusick, he gives a very interesting illustration. It's kind of bizarre, and you'll have to bear with me. But he says, in all his years of counseling, he's realized that there are basically two kinds of people in this world. There are those who eat chocolate cake for breakfast, and they probably shouldn't. And then there are those people who have never, ever eaten chocolate cake for breakfast, and they should probably try it. Okay, that's kind of how you can divide the world into two categories. 
what he's trying to get at is the topic of desire. He's trying to tap into the fact that every single human being is born with desires. We are born with urges. We spend our lives trying to figure out how those urges, how those desires are going to be satisfied. And there are two really bad options in front of us. You want to satisfy desire? Here's two ways not to do it. Number one, we can demand that our desires are fulfilled. Those are the kinds of people that eat chocolate cake for breakfast. We can demand that whatever desire we have, whatever impulse we have, we should have its fulfillment and we should have it immediately. That's called hedonism, right? Whatever urge, whatever desire, you run, you get it satisfied, and that is a hedonistic worldview. The second bad option to handle the desires that we're born with is equally as dangerous. We don't demand our desires, we disown our desires. We go through life thinking that the word desire is a dirty word and we try to kind of suppress it wherever we find it. We would never eat chocolate cake for breakfast. We, we suppress these desires that we have and we'd like to live our lives as if we didn't even have these desires in the first place. The one side is hedonism. The other side, the opposite, is this severe form of asceticism. Cusick is trying to say, right alongside of Thomas Aquinas and C.S. Lewis and the prophet Jeremiah, we are all as human beings born to desire and we are designed to have those desires deliciously and fully satisfied. You understand that? We are all born to desire. That's innate within every single human being. And we are designed by God to have that God-given desire deliciously and fully satisfied. I wonder if we really do believe that truth. I wonder if we act like we believe that truth. Because I think we can get a little squeamish in the church talking about desire or craving or yearning. Typically when we use those words, it's in a negative context. Those words sound dangerous, right? We treat desire like we talk about arson. It, it's just, it can get out of hand quick. It's better just to keep a lid on it. Let's not talk about these things. There is a bitingly sarcastic song by a songwriter named Josh Ritter, which is my favorite kind of song that there is, Biting Sarcasm. And maybe you've heard it. It's called Getting Ready to Get Down. Any of you guys heard that song by Josh Ritter? Nobody. Great illustration. This is perfect. <laughs> so basically... He's putting his finger precisely on this point because he's describing a girl who grows up in a staunchly religious home and once she reaches adolescence, the problem starts between her and her parents and Josh Ritter writes this song about it and he sings it and it's really awkward to read a couple of stanzas but I'm definitely not going to sing it for you this morning so just kind of bear with me and try to listen to this. But here's what he says. He says, Mama got to look at you and got a little worried. Papa got to look at you and got a little worried. 
pastor got a look and said, y'all better hurry, send her off to a little Bible college in Missouri. And now you come back saying you know a little bit about every little thing they ever hoped you'd never figure out. Eve ate the apple because the apple was sweet. What kind of God would keep a girl from getting what she needs? Now people cross the street when you walk in their direction, talk between their teeth, throwing epithets, and the doctor thinks the devil must have got you by your senses, but to live the way you please doesn't sound like possession. Isn't that fantastic? Ritter is basically making fun of this prudish kind of religion that doesn't know what to do with passion. He's basically making fun of people who serve a God who doesn't know what to do with desire. We can't disown our desire. We can't get rid of our desire. Every single human being is born with it. We can't do anything with it. But the God that Ritter proposes He won't do for us either because he'll simply follow every single passion that we have to satisfy. So once again, he's left us with two bad options. You can disown your desires and pretend like you don't have them, or you can demand your desires and take them wherever you lead, but neither of those things rings true to biblical faith. Right in the middle of that tension, of what to do with desire, how to fulfill desire, what to do with yearning and longing. God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah words that we heard several weeks ago in one of the most profound metaphors in the Bible. Jeremiah 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Thirst is a good thing. Thirst is right. Thirst is pure. It's passionate. Thirst is a craving that it gets inside of our bones and it screams for satisfaction. When you become thirsty, I mean really, truly thirsty, you can hardly think of anything else. One of our elders actually led a devotion on this topic right from Jeremiah chapter 2. And by way of illustration, he didn't drink anything for the entire day before he led the devotion. So he sits down with Jeremiah 2 and he begins explaining his day and what it felt like to go without any form of drink and how thirsty that had made him. And the more he describes just being lethargic and thirsty and dry mouth, the thirstier I'm becoming as I'm sitting listening to that devotion. I mean, it got so bad at one point, I just wanted the man to stop talking about the Bible so that I could get up and get a drink. I mean, it was awful. It was the worst devotion I've ever heard. I'm still (laughs) thirsty just thinking about that, and I could use a drink right now. God has no problem with thirst. He doesn't scold Israel in Jeremiah chapter 2 for being thirsty because God himself, he gives us the gift of thirst. The dual problem is where we drink. We disown this God-given desire to drink fresh and living water from a fountain, and we embrace and we demand this God-forsaken desire for a filthy substitute. We've got these two bad options in front of us that we go to again and again and again. 
Now, I want you to keep all of this in your mind. Everything that we've said about yearning and longing, everything about desire, because I told you it was going to take half the sermon to work up the courage to address these words, and now we're here and we're ready to go. The immediate context of Jeremiah chapter 12, if you've read before or after, is judgment. God says this in our verse, I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. Now that's intense. You're not going to find that printed on a Lifeway greeting card. You're not going to find that there. These are intense words of judgment. But if you take a step back and look at the entirety of Jeremiah chapter 12, it's not just judgment, but it also speaks a word of hope. As we heard from verse 15, I will again have compassion. This is training us as New Testament Christians to have access to Old Testament prophecy. In Christ, in the gospel, after Easter, every biblical promise, blessing, description is yes and amen in Jesus. It is ours. As a born-again Christian, you can reach down in Jeremiah chapter 12, you can pull out these five English words, and you can bank your life on them. These are true for us. They are yes and amen in Jesus. Today, God stands before you, and he says to you, you are the beloved of my soul. You're the beloved of my soul. Now, I think the problem here why I said it took me courage to address these words, it's not an issue of interpreting prophecy rightly, right? I don't think anybody disagrees that the Bible says that God loves you. If we can't find it here, we can find it in other places in scripture. The problem is not knowledge. The problem is desire. The problem is letting our hearts want this more than anything else in the world. Clearing white noise, clearing nibbling from the table of the world, clearing distractions from our minds, and saying, this is the very thing that I long for. This is the thing I want more than anything else in the world. The problem is not knowledge, it's desire, and it's believing that there is enough of God's love to satisfy that desire. That's harder than we think. It's harder than we think to have access to this passage. I want you guys to humor me for a moment, okay? I want to ask you to do just kind of this awkward experiment here amongst yourselves. Anytime a pastor asks people to talk to each other, it's awkward, but it's actually going to get worse because I want you to turn to the people on either side of you, whether you know them or not, and I want you to look them in the eye, and I want you to tell them, you are are the beloved of God's soul. Can you do that for a moment, just amongst yourselves, to the right and to the left? All right, all right, that's enough. That's enough fellowship. That's enough truth speaking. I mean, 
What did it feel like to begin to say that to somebody? I heard a lot of giggling when that happened, right? That became kind of like this embarrassing thing, and you can either deliver it with a giggle or a blush, or you can be deadpan and say it as a solemn assignment to somebody. It's not clear which you should do. Some of you probably said, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. I'm not telling anybody that God loves them. I'm not doing that. What did it feel like to be on the receiving end of that? I mean, to have somebody look you dead in the eye and speak these words to you. Were you embarrassed? Did you blush? Did you pause for a moment, even in a goofy exercise, and believe for a minute that this person was speaking on the authority of Christ and his gospel? Receiving unadulterated, unmitigated, undeserved Gushing love is really, really hard work. It's really hard to do. It's really hard to receive. It requires trust. It requires vulnerability. It requires a little bit of recklessness. It requires honesty with the desires that we have deep inside of ourselves. I don't at all mean to sound trite when I say this, but there are some serious obstacles in our midst between us and our experiences and holding out both hands to receive the kind of love that God offers us. Don't expect to walk out of a childhood or a young adulthood with dad issues, mom issues, sex issues, substance issues, body issues, and into the church, arms wide open, ready to accept God's love. Don't expect to walk out of experiences of rejection or breakup or betrayal and into the church ready to be vulnerable with God's love. Don't expect to nurse feelings of shame inadequacy, of being unlovable or unworthy or undesirable and enter full steam into the promise that you are God's treasured possession. Don't expect to have spent any time in a house of a brow-beating religion that that frowns on desire in any form, a house like King David's wife, Michael, who scolds David for dancing with exuberance before the Lord. Don't walk out of a house like that and expect to walk into this house allowing the Spirit to let you receive these words with abandon. Don't expect to be drinking face down in a cistern of dirty water, trying to quench your thirst in every direction and still be thirsty enough to drink from living water. To know and desire God's love for us in Christ, it's not a mindset shift. It's not a worldview tweak. It's not a Sunday school curriculum. It is a supernatural miracle. Paul, he writes to the church in Ephesus, and he says in chapter 3, I literally, I get on my knees and I beg the Father 
that he would send the Holy Spirit, that Jesus would live inside of you and he would give you a special kind of strength so that you could know what is the height and the breadth and the width and the depth of Jesus' love for you. To get from where we sit today to have access to Jeremiah 12 verse 7 is going to take a concerted, cooperative effort of every single person of the Trinity. God's going to do a miracle in us to give us access to these five words that you are the beloved of my soul. Think about those words for just a minute. You're the beloved of my soul. God doesn't even have a soul. God doesn't have a soul to be the beloved of. It's like when he calls us the apple of his eye in Psalm 17, or he says, you're being protected under the shadow of my wings in Psalm 91. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a soul. He doesn't have eyes. He doesn't have wings. He is trying to communicate to finite people what it is like to receive love from an infinite being. The love of God, it comes from his innermost being. It's pure and whole because God himself is pure and whole. It's sure and true because God himself is sure and true. It's inexhaustible because God himself is inexhaustible. It's unadulterated because there is no division in God. It's inexplicable because God himself is unfathomable. He says it again and again here and elsewhere I defy you to open up the Psalms in any place and read 10 of them. And when you do that, you will find that our deepest, most innate desires to be known, to be loved, to be found worthy of something are going to be matched with God's loving satisfaction. Psalm 31. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear him. Like in God's economy, there is an account of goodness that is credited to us by Christ, and we will spend the rest of our lives drawing from that account of God's goodness. Psalm 32, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. I don't know how austere your worship style is, but God becomes downright as undignified as David when it comes to the gospel and shouting over us. Psalm 33, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 35, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. I kind of think in my life that God is ambivalent when good things happen But when bad things happen, he's trying to teach me a life lesson. And the psalmist disagrees. When good things happen to you, when you're happy about something, when things go your way, God is absolutely delighted. Psalm 36, they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them to drink from the rivers of delight. I dare you to believe Psalm 41. You, O God, delight in me. Or Psalm 56, this I know, God is for me. 
Psalm 52, the steadfast love of God, it endures all the day long. Psalm 63, your steadfast love, it's better than life itself. I can't help myself. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. In the gospel, desire meets satisfaction. What we hope for, what we yearn for, what we desire, it is fully and deliciously satisfied. I want to close with this. A couple of weeks ago, our family was at the farmer's market and somebody gave my son Judah a track which on the one side was a trillion dollar bill and on the back side was this really lame explanation of the gospel relating it to money. It was terrible, but Judah was thrilled. I mean, he had a trillion dollar bill. And so he's kind of parading around our house for the rest of the day, I think half joking that he was now really rich and he had money to spend. Well, as he's doing that, he looks out the window And he sees my 2004 Honda Civic sitting in the driveway, which incidentally has about a trillion miles on it. And Judah kind of said triumphantly, I could buy your car. (laughs) I could buy it. I could flat out buy it. I could pay cash for it. And I'm thinking, my car, you could buy countries. I mean, you can buy whole countries with these things. My son is already turning into an unimaginative materialist. It's terrible. But I think he kind of learned his lesson because later in the day, Julie was driving down Beltline with him, and he was looking out uh, both sides of the car, and he said, you know what? With this money, I bet I could clean up this town. <laughs> and I was like, now you're talking. We're, we're getting somewhere. This has been said a million times before. It deserves to be said again. Our problem as human beings is not that we desire too much, but we desire too little. It's shopping for a Honda Civic with a trillion dollar bill. When we spend hours of our time surfing online for porn, when we spend hours of our time shopping on Amazon, when we spend hours of our time nursing a grudge or observed in ourself or speaking ill about another person, it's not that our desires are too big and too out of control. It's that they are unimaginative and underperforming. They're not big enough. We're not asking for enough. We're asking for too little. Desire is a good thing given by God. And where God gives a promise, it's good to want it. It's good to desire it. It's good to be risky and to tell other people that that's what we long for. It is good and wholesome to dream about it, to pray for it, to celebrate it with exuberance, to share it with other people, to trust in that promise with every fiber of our being. And when we awaken that desire in our heart for promises like this, God's going to take these five words and by the power of his Holy Spirit, he's going to bury them in our hearts 
And we are going to find satisfaction unlike we have ever known. Christian, you are the beloved of God's soul. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it sounds too good to be true. But I pray that we would believe it. I pray that we would bank our life on it. I pray that we would celebrate and rejoice in it and share it one with another. I pray that you would fan the flame of desire and yearning and longing within us because you've given us these desires and they can be fully and deliciously satisfied in you. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.